When I was a boy, uh, my grandmother's sister, so Aunt Nan, um, if you need the background, my grandmother's sister was known for sending really eccentric Christmas presents. And I remember, I mean, for example, I remember once getting this multicolored disc. Maybe it was a, a portrait, maybe it was something to, to decorate, maybe it was a, a game. The major family discussion that evening was, what is this thing supposed to be? And the reaction to that was not a one-off. Her gifts often left us asking, what is this? And the point of that is that when we receive a gift, we do need to know what it is. We need to understand it, namely, so that we can also understand what this gift is for. What do we do with it? How do we use it? Knowing what a present is helps us to know its purpose. If someone gives you a wristwatch, right, you recognize what it is and why you should use it. It's a tool meant to keep track of time. But maybe you get that unrecognizable gift from an eccentric great aunt, requiring more work to figure out even what this gift is. All the more to understand what it does and why you might, might need it. But in 1 Corinthians, Paul is, is continuing through his pastoral project of addressing divisions within the church at Corinth. They were divided over numerous matters like preaching, morality, conscience, worship, and even gospel issues like the resurrection as we will see in chapter 15. In our section, in, in chapters 12 to 14, Paul was tackling problems regarding worship. Namely, that the Corinthian Christians were seeking prestige among one another by wanting their spiritual gifts to add to their personal prestige, their personal presence, their notoriety and recognition. And as We have worked through chapters 12 and 13. The clear point has been that Christians should most seek love for one another. Spiritual gifts are mere outlets, tools used to love and provide for each other's good. That's what they do. And thus far we've highlighted mainly the gift's purpose for the common good. In chapter 14, Paul focused on how the Corinthians were actually practicing the use of gifts in their times of of worship. And so, although I've I've put it off continually as the topic has come up at a few moments in this letter, at this point we need to take account of these spiritual gifts that he addresses in this chapter. And there are a lot of opinions about spiritual gifts, with true Christians disagreeing significantly with one another. And before we can untangle what Paul said to do with these gifts throughout this chapter, we need to ask, well, what is this? What are these gifts? And so as a, as a kind of preface, as we 
ease into chapter 14, really, which is about prophecy and, and tongues, we need to know what these two gifts are, their purpose, and whether or not we should expect to continue to use them today. And so this sermon is trying to set a, a framework setting a foundation to help us make sense of the details as we move ahead in this chapter together. So the main point, main point, is God gave prophecy and tongues to confirm and spread the gospel for a special season of apostolic ministry. Let me say that one again, and I'll try to do it slow. I know it's little bit less direct than usual. God gave prophecy and tongues to confirm and spread the gospel for the special season of apostolic ministry. Now we're going to think about three questions together. What are the gifts of prophecy and tongues? Have they ceased? And why is this useful? And so first, let's ask the question, what, what are the gifts of prophecy in tongues? And I, I imagine actually that no one starts reading this chapter by asking that question. And the reason I think that few people ask that question at least is, is because most people assume that they already know the answer. And yet, there actually are divided understandings about this topic. So then, first, we've got two gifts here. And so, first, what is prophecy? Admittedly, I, I think prophecy is an easier gift to explain, to define, uh, and less debated than tongues. So we're going to take the easy one first. Prophecy is communicating direct revelations from God. Right? It's, it's, giving over a gift that God, sorry, a message, giving over a message that God has given directly to a prophet. A prophet is someone who speaks a revealed message received from God. In the prophetic literature, so so the books written by the Old Testament prophets, uh, the repeated phrase, I'm just trying to prove what, what prophecy is, the repeated phrase throughout these books is, thus says the Lord. Right? The prophets received words directly from God and they conveyed those words. Thus says the Lord. They conveyed those words to God's people. And another phrase clarifies and confirms this point. Often, the prophetic books begin with, with this phrase. The word of the Lord came upon the prophet X. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. All began that way. That God's revelation came upon the prophet marks how he never went after it. It's not as divination or occult practices where they seek a revelation. The prophet did not learn in a, in a class how to prophesy as, as someone can try to do with preaching, uh, teaching, or even some understandings of prophecy. 
some people, some people in the early modern period thought that prophecy meant essentially speaking in front of someone, um, preaching. So if you ever read like William Perkins, The Art of Prophesying, he just means the art of preaching. But, so anyway, that's an aside. Uh, rather than that, you, you can't learn this, but God commits a specific divinely inspired message into the hands of the prophet. The gift of prophecy is then, the gift of prophecy is just the regular reception of inspired messages. So prophecy, the, the gift of prophecy is regularly receiving inspired message from God to hand on to his people. So that's what prophecy is. What are tongues? What is, what is this gift of tongues? There's a common perception that tongues means speaking in ecstatic utterances. Okay, let me put that a, a different way. I, I hope that that makes sense. You know, you're, you're lost in the moment. Kind of just these, these sounds that you don't know come out. But let's put it in another way. Some view tongues as inherently non-understandable apart from a divinely gifted interpreter. There's no, there's no way to understand what's being said apart from this divinely gifted interpreter. Meaning that tongues are, in this view, essentially spontaneous expressions of something that God is doing in you for your experience. Okay, so that's one view. And I'm not going to take that view. I'm going to argue something else. Because the scripture, on the other hand, presents the, the gift of tongues as the ability to speak a human language that you have never learned for the purpose of spreading the gospel. So let me just go back over that one. Okay, the, the gift of tongues is the ability to speak a human language that you've never learned. That's why it's miraculous. It's, it's not the same as taking a French class. Okay, it's, it's miraculously enabled speaking a human language that you've never learned for the purpose, for the purpose of communicating the gospel. And so let's think about Acts 2. Right, this, this is where this passage really helps us. I, I think it, it would be unwarranted to think that two passages of Scripture speak about, talk about speaking in tongues, uh, and this as a gift, and mean two radically different things if that's not outlined pretty clearly. So, so my assumption here coming into this is that as they are talking about this gift of speaking in tongues, act, the book of Acts and, and Paul in 1 Corinthians are talking about the same gift. This passage in Acts 2 describes Pentecost, when God poured out the Spirit in new measure after Christ ascended. And so verse 4, if we zone in on verse 4 there, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in, do you see the whole phrase, other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
Now, God did not leave us in this passage to speculate about what is going on, but further explained it. So if we jump down to verse 7 and 8, and and they were, so this is, this is talking about the, the crowd, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Then, the, uh, these speakers go on and list several languages that they heard, right? And so they summarize in verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues, our own tongues, the mighty works of God. So this was, what were the apostles doing? Gospel preaching, right? It was, it was gospel preaching, announcing the good news of Jesus Christ in human languages. There's a list of the languages that they used. The hearers were impressed because Galileans were Galileans of all people, right? Not known for immense learning. Farm people of sorts. You know, people from Alabama. The hearers were impressed uh, because Galileans were speaking these languages that Galileans did not normally or naturally speak. The Holy Spirit enabled them to preach in a language, in a tongue, right, which they had not learned, and he enabled them to do that for the purpose of announcing the gospel to people whose language the speaker did not know. So, so this miraculous gift enabled speakers to preach the gospel in, in languages which they'd never learned. And in this instance, in this instance, right, this, this accounts for one of the things Paul says, which we'll get to in, in this instance, nobody had to interpret the tongues, the, these other languages out loud, Because the hearers understood them. There were people who knew these languages. And so they didn't need to be reinterpreted, translated out loud um, as as the preachers spoke in these languages. So, So from the outset, we see... So that's the gift of tongues, right? Speaking a a human language that, that someone has never learned for the purpose of spreading the gospel. And so from the outset... When, when we when we think about both of these gifts joined back together, these gifts were meant for confirming, for explaining, and spreading the gospel. Right? They they are not personally or experientially oriented, but gospel and churchly oriented. They are not for for drawing attention to ourselves or helping ourselves, but for making the truth known to others. If our understanding of these gifts, and here, here's, I guess, sort of one of the sticky points, if our understanding of these gifts does not match these biblical descriptions, then from the outset, we're, we're not talking about the true spiritual gifts, but something else. Now, there, there's a lot of, of opinions about what other something else we might be talking about. I'm not sure that this is the place to hash all of that out. 
But what we can come to agree is that if if the the use of a of a so-called gift does not match how the Bible describes the use of these gifts, then it's something else and not that gift. And so we have before us what these two miraculous gifts are. Speaking direct messages from God and speaking languages never learned, both for the purpose, both for the purpose of making truth known. That's, that's why both of the, so what is it and what's it for? Well, now we know that what they are and that they're for the purpose of making truth known. Second question. Right, so what are they? Have they ceased? Are they still in use today? And and the big issue concerning spiritual gifts, the, the miraculous spiritual gifts. Sorry, if I if I forget the adjective miraculous in this, fill it in because that's normal, ordinary spiritual gifts. Of course, continue. The big issue concerning these gifts is whether or not they should be, or even can be, practiced today. And I'm going to try to present that these gifts were tied to a very specific purpose for which God gave them at a particular time period just after Christ's ascension. Now let's think about a graduation ceremony, because that's the natural place to go right now, right? Uh, one of the characteristic features of a graduation ceremony is the graduation gown. I wasn't personally a fan of them, but most of my friends really enjoyed the opportunity to wear this classic mark of graduating. But no matter how much they enjoyed wearing the gown for this event, I, for the ceremony, I imagine, I sort of hope, that very few graduates would feel comfortable wearing that gown daily for the remainder of their lives. It's a special outfit for a special time, not meant and not suitable for ongoing day-to-day life. It's tied to to this moment in time rather than for continual use. And that is what I claim is Paul's point about spiritual gifts when he writes uh, to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. So I'll read these verses to you. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the, and here's our our key phrase, the household of God, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Cornerstone is the first thing laid, hinges all the foundation together, and then a structure goes on top of the foundation. Right? The church, the ongoing church, right today and forever until Christ returns, the church is the structure built, the building that 
is, is developed on top of a specific foundation of apostles and prophets. As the church builds higher and higher, adding floor after floor of family members gathered into this home, the building gets taller, but the foundation remains the same, unchanged. The foundation, which is apostles and prophets, was once for all. And as we'll think about more momentarily, like a graduation gown, miraculous gifts were a special contribution for that apostolic period. How does that work? Right? Why, why do we think that? Why, why were miraculous gifts tied to this one specific time in history? Okay, let's think about the Bible holistically. Okay, beginning to end, there's a story. We know that. In the Bible, though, as you think about the ongoing narrative, there is a pattern wherein God acts into history for his people, and then, accompanying that act, he inspires new revelation to explain those Acts. So let's think, for example, right? We're, everybody here, I think, is going to be pretty familiar with God parting the Red Sea. Right? He's bringing Israel out of Egypt. He splits the Red Sea. This is the Exodus. God parted the waters, freeing Israel from slavery. The Exodus, the Exodus was a true event in history that revealed God as the Savior of His people. He was made known to them in this event as he saved them. But following that historical event, God inspired the books of Genesis to Deuteronomy to explain that event. That's what they do, right? They record the narrative and they give an account for why God did the things he did when he brought Israel out of Egyptian slavery and eventually brought them to the edge of the promised land. So, accompanying, coming along with God's historical work, God gives a new uh, revelation in word. So God works, and then he gives a word to explain it. Like a graduation gown is meant for a specific event, miraculous gifts are meant for specific events of God's acting as well. Now, this may sound kind of complex, but it really isn't. So just hang with me. Let's let's just tease it out for a second. Remember back however long ago it may be, uh, when when you were a child and your parents were fixing something around the house. So as, as a child, what, to their annoyance, did you do as you watched them fix it? Hey, why'd you do that? Right? And to that, they would say, well, I need to use this tool in this way because it contributes, you know, in this manner to, to fixing this problem. And God knows why those children. He works. He's out to fix the problem of our sin. He does an act in history. And he knows his people... 
as his children are going to ask, hey, why'd you do that? And so, to preserve the, the explanation, to preserve the event, a rec, uh, uh, an infallible record of the event itself, and to preserve his explanation, God inspired the scripture to answer that question for us. He inspires scripture and gives miraculous gifts then, not, not spontaneously or sporadically, but precisely to answer that question of explaining his saving actions. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, ties this point precisely to Christ's first coming. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So long ago, God spoke by the prophets. But in these days... So there's a contrast, right? In these days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Christ's first coming was God's defining, definitive, punctiliar, last final work of redemption. And so it required a word revelation. It was the culminating work of redemption, and so it required a new word, revelation, to explain it. We know that Christ died, and we know that his death had the purpose of forgiving our sin because God preserved that true, infallible explanation of his death in the Scriptures. But Christ's death and resurrection is the climactic event of salvation. And therefore, once that event, once that work is explained, well, we don't expect any new prophecies. What other work is there left for God to do in the history of our redemption? It's all been completed in Christ. And so there's nothing more to confirm by miracles and nothing new to explain in his miraculous, in his definitive saving works to redeem his people from sin in history. And so God confirmed the gospel by explaining Christ's work. He, he demonstrated that this was his message, right? As the apostles explained it by explaining Christ's work in prophecy, inspired messages and and in Scripture. And he confirmed the gospel as the apostles preached it by accompanying definitive event with miraculous gifts. But now, now that he has confirmed it in, in the records we have in the New Testament, he no longer speaks by prophets, but in this age he speaks by the Son directly. And so we we listen to the scripture rather than new prophets. The apostolic period with miraculous gifts was foundational. But we are building on the foundation. No no longer in need of ongoing new revelations or miraculous gifts. Now, I want to pause for just one second. 
and, and think about something important. Because, because the point is that God has, that I'm trying to argue, is that God has ceased to give miraculous gifts exercised seemingly somewhat at will by a particular person. Now, we need to be clear as we say that. We need, we need to hear very plainly that God continues to work miracles and perform wonderful things for his people, right? We... What has stopped is that he no longer gives the miraculous gifts for people to use continually and that he no longer distributes new messages through people. Now, we pray all the time for God to work miracles of protection, of healing, right, of provision, of bringing people to faith, certainly a miracle, right? So we believe that God does miraculous things and we ask Him to do them. God still does amazing things and we expect that He will always do amazing things for His people as we pray to Him. So that's just a caveat at the end of that. That that doesn't mean that God has quit doing miracles. It means He has ceased to enable His people to do miracles because his definitive message of salvation is confirmed finally and definitively. Okay, so I've made the case that these miraculous gifts are not for our use today. Now we come to our final question. Why is this useful? There's two aspects to that, isn't there? Right? If Why is the record of them useful if we don't still have them? Why is the truth itself that they've ceased useful to us? And so we need to, we need to take account of, of a few reasons here why this is a helpful thing to consider. Right? This, this could easily just gravitate as a, as a full lecture without uh, a sermonic aspect to it. And I want to avoid that. There is real application for our hearts and lives as we think about it. So the first reason why I think this is useful is this truth reminds us that the Bible is truly sufficient for faith and practice in the Christian life. Why is that how, I mean, yeah, we all, you know, everybody's like, yes, but why is that relevant in this discussion? If, if God provided new revelations and still makes himself known through miraculous gifts, well then, in that case, we easily become anxious about if we have received enough prophecy, right, to move forward in life, to know what God would have us do. Or or we become anxious about if, if we've had enough direction from, from a miraculous teacher to, to make the decisions we need to make and to press forward in the Christian life. That's what happens if we are waiting on miraculous gifts to keep coming to us. Can. But, but if we do not expect new prophecies, well then we trust that what we have in the Bible is enough for us. 
right? We can rest knowing that God has adequately revealed right here, this is everything you need to know to live the Christian life, to believe what you need to believe. God works now in the church to guide us in more particular decisions as we work together as the body of Christ, as we grow together, as we help each other, giving wisdom and counsel. But we don't need new revelation to direct us. Second, second. So it it helps us see how the Bible really is sufficient for our Christian life. Second, it makes us depend directly upon God as we walk forward in the Christian life. If we still had people with miraculous gifts today, it would be easy for any of us to to depend or want to depend on them as if we need this person with this amazing gift in order to have access to God or at least to have the best access to God. And sadly, I I don't think this is controversial, sadly, that does in fact play out uh, um, too often among some who claim to have miraculous gifts today. False teachers build massive followings by claiming to have new revelation from God and pretending to work miracles. They become that becomes the center of attention, hardly, if ever, mentioning the gospel of forgiveness in Jesus Christ as the power to move forward in the Christian life. Rather, they become what you need. But, on the other hand, an ordinary, an ordinary rather than a miraculous or highly experiential Christian life is actually good for us. Because it is focusing. It focuses us. God had to confirm the apostles' message in the early church. But not the ongoing same apostolic message announced by preachers today. We don't need to look for to signs and wonders. But we look directly to God in His grace. We do not live between sporadic experiential events like using miraculous gifts, knowing God's presence only when the extraordinary happens. Rather, rather, truthfully, we live in light of the one event that has changed everything in Jesus Christ. The Christian life is fueled not by ongoing high experiences, but by stated trust in Jesus Christ who loves you and gave himself for you. Which highlights the third reason uh, that the cessation of miraculous gifts is useful. Christ's life, death, and resurrection is the definitive the climactic, the final, all-encompassing event, work of salvation. There is nothing left for God to do to, to save you. God's miraculous signs 
accompanied new installments, right? That's what we've seen, is that God's miraculous signs accompanied new installments of works that he performed to save his people. Signs, miraculous signs, were tied to the ongoing need of his new works to achieve salvation. But Jesus Christ has achieved everything. There is nothing left for God to confirm. It has all been done. Jesus Christ has said, it is finished. It's ever, so we, we, ha, we are happy, right? He completed everything necessary for, for, God completed everything necessary for His people's salvation in Jesus Christ. And so, we can be very happy to leave miraculous gifts in the past. Because it testifies, the fact that they are gone, testifies to the unshakable certainty, the lasting permanence, the full sufficiency of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, who died to forgive our sin, rose for our justification, and stands in heaven ever to intercede for those whom he loved so richly that he gave himself to the cross for you. So then let us discard Let us discard fascination with spectacular personal experiences. And let us strive always to make Christ the all-encompassing vision that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Not to momentary glimpses of ecstasy, of encompassing experience, but, but looking to Jesus. The one who has done it all. Because he loves you. And has secured your redemption for everyone who places their trust in him. Let's pray. Father God, this is in some ways an obscure discussion, and we know that. And yet we are glad that we end here on the definitive message of the gospel. That salvation is done. It is finished. We don't need these miraculous gifts anymore because there is nothing left for you to prove. You've proven it all when you nailed our sin to the cross in Jesus Christ, forgiving us all the debt that we could ever owe you for our wrongdoings and trespasses. And so we give thanks that as we consider this topic, we end by rejoicing in the definitive nature of the gospel of how Christ is fully sufficient, of how your word is fully sufficient to direct us in in this life. And so we pray that as we leave from here, we are content that, that we are not leaving here anxious as if there are things before us that we need, but we feel at ease. We feel comforted because we know that you have given all that is necessary for our everlasting life and living now until we arrive there. We pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.